right. You know, the Bible was just a pamphlet for some of you guys. So anyway, you're looking at a map. Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through... Well, the whole chapter, actually. Hang on, i got to turn this on. What do you think? Can you hear that now? All right, let me put this down here someplace so it doesn't bother us. And and uh, Judges chapter four is an old familiar story. You have heard this story probably a couple of times or more since you were kids. It's Deborah and Barak, and we're going to go there this morning. So, as they used to say in the old days, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was a TV show called Rocky and Bullwinkle, and Professor Peabody would tell, tell Sherman to set the Wayback Machine. They would climb in the Wayback Machine, and they would go, and we're going to go to 1200 or about anywhere from, well, the date's right up here on the, on the bottom. It says 1200 to 1000 A.D., probably 1100 A.D., so let's just get there. There, I have the old-fashioned paperwork. I don't have. I know you more modern folks are pushing buttons and 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 moving things with your finger, but I I'm a, I'm still kind of a paperwork kind of person. So, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. Now it's it's actually Yabin, but we're going to Americanize it and say Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, Hazor, if you look on your map, Hazor is up on the right-hand side at the top. It was a, a major city. It was important. Do you see that thing called Lake Hula? That's a, that's a sloppy, uh, a terrible place to have to uh, move along in because it was Lake Hula was very shallow and it was always uh, a swampy in the area. It was a big, uh, just a basin of water. In fact, in 1958, Israel voted to, uh, decided to drain it. So if you look on the new maps, you won't see Lake Hula anymore in there. So, so up in there, it's, it's actually Hatzor. Uh, it starts with a little K sound down in your throat. Hatzor. And it ends with a T before the Z. But we're just going to say Hazer. Because that's where we live in America. And so, <coughs> Hazer, and the commander of his army was Sisera, or Sisera, who lived in Ha-Hosheth-Ha-Goyim. If you've got the King James with you today, I don't know if you do, you'll just see that they didn't... Ah, there's the King James. Okay, it doesn't say Ha-Goyim. It says the, uh, uh, the nations. It says the nations. That's, that's a literal translation of Ha-Goyim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord... For he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Let me understand something about this iron chariots. Do not picture iron-clad boilerplate with rivets and this massive heavy thing. Don't think of... Uh, my kids used to watch this show, Mad Max, this uh, uh, Mel... Oh, I'm trying to remember... Uh, Gibson, that's it. And he had these sand, these sand movies, and these people were riding around. He's, okay, we're not going to go there. It's a wooden, it's a wooden chariot, and it has iron parts. The parts that fail often 
are made and replaced with iron. A, the axles. B, the hub. And C, the rim. The rim has been lined with iron so that when it crunches on the gravel, it doesn't wear the wheel out quickly. So these things are like capable of long and enduring runs. So now we have... <coughs> and these chariots, with these chariots, he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. And now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now you go to your map, you'll see that it's actually off the map. It's somewhere down in your lap. That's where, he, that's where she judged. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. This is to settle things, to settle arguments and disputes. And, and now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor. And, and I've shown you a, a place called Mount Tabor. And take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. And then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall be not yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. doesn't name the woman. just says the name. And then Deborah. So I need to pause here just for a second. For so many years, I was under the impression that this is a story about a guy that was a, an example of a nation or an Israel or a group of people in which they had become so depraved, they had gone declined so badly that women were telling him what to do. They were listening to women. And that he, would, he, he didn't want to go up. He was a coward. He didn't want to go up in front of these, these, these soldiers. He didn't want to run this army unless he could hide behind her skirt. Let me, let, me, let me point that out, that that's not correct. I believe that was wrong, or I had heard wrong. First of all, <clears throat> Sisera has a standing army. That is, it's an army in which all the people in that army have nothing else to do except fight. These are guys that know what they're doing. They're professionals. They have a kind of camaraderie. They do strategic war games. They move. Okay. Israel has none of that. Israel is full of shopkeepers. These are guys attending the vineyards. These are guys that are repairing shoes and sandals. These are guys that are farmers, that gather wheat, that sow. These are people who educate their own kids. These are just ordinary shopkeepers. And so, <clears throat> Barak... I don't believe Barak is this coward that I had always thought. No, he can't be. In today's standing army, we have a standing army in America. Oh, sorry. And in that army, you have people at the top. They're like five-star generals. And when they want to promote a guy, they give, they give some of those stars to the guy coming up the, the ranks. But when you have an army that is not a standing army, it's just a volunteer army. This guy has got to have some chutzpah. 
Barak has got to have some kind of pull with people. If I asked you guys, come on, we're let's, we're we're gonna we're gonna go and uh, invade. We're gonna go and invade Canada. They're a nice, peaceful country. Bob Talbert just called and got on the phone, and he's trying to put an army together. And we're all going, wait a second, who's Bob Talbert? Why in the world should we fight for this guy or with this guy? So Barak is somebody is a somebody. He's a he's not an insignificant person. He actually is the major character in our story today. He's the one. <coughs> that was able, on his word, to raise an army, a muster army. That means, that means that all those shopkeepers have to turn the sign around back like this, closed. They're the ones that have to go pack their bags. They're the ones that have to have their wife fix them a lunch or fix them a dinner. They're the ones that have to like gather up their instruments of war. All because of a guy named Barak, on his say-so. So I would like to refute that. That, And second of all, Deborah knows just how to touch Barak. Do you see where she says, but the honor won't be yours? That is to say that if you're a coward, I'll do it again, sorry. If you're a coward, you're not going to mind that Sisera gets killed by a woman. You're going to go, oh, thank goodness. I was, I was worried I would get killed. So he's clearly not. He's a, he's a valiant man. This guy's got some substance. He's got chutzpah. Let's keep going. Where did I leave off? And she said, "I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall be yours." Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, or Kadesh, and it's right up here by the Sea of Galilee. It's here in the north. It's on the west bank. It would be higher in elevation, so it would have a kind of a pleasant view, pleasant view of, of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. They don't have a very... They have a social media, but it's not like the one you're used to. I know you guys are all on Facebook and you're all Twittering. You have Twitter accounts. And you guys are all into that. I know that because that's just a trendy thing to do now. And you seem trendy. But in that day, it was word of mouth. And we know from chapter 5, verse 4, if you were to check that out, you would find out that the roads were a dangerous place for Israelites to walk on. The roads were actually off limits. You could, you could wind up dead or dragged off or... Somebody could stop you and have their way with you. They could take anything from you. And so they, we know that they were using the goat trails. This is a nation that's sneaking around in the, on the backwoods and in the goat trails of the nation, all trying to avoid those iron chariots. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people with him from Ha. Rosheth Hakoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise! 
For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. She knows that because it starts to rain. Let me, let me, let me just jump ahead in time. Uh, let's go to World War I. The British Army was stationed in, on, around this area, in this, in this region. And they claimed that after a 15, just a 15-minute rain, their modern vehicles bogged down and couldn't make any headway in this, in this region up here. This region gets really kind of swampy. It gets soft. The ground goes soft pretty quickly here. This is going to be a problem. So she sends them down. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following when the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Can I just tell you a little something I learned about chariot warfare? Chariot warfare is, uh, is, is, a, pretty, is a specific technique. It, it needs, you know, like you wouldn't run up a side of a mountain with chariots. The technique is, is to line up your chariots this way and this way with several yards apart, many yards apart. And then you are equipped with a charioteer. This is the driver. That's his only job is to drive. And then on either side of him, there could be one or two people with archers. All right? And you race at the line of infantry, which would be the, the Israelites or the, the Zebulonites and the Polyites. Okay, you would race straight at them, all abreast. And then they're terrified because they see this stream of chariots racing at them. They hunker down. It's a defensive position. You hunker down. The charioteer, the driver, will turn at the last minute. They all turn at the same time. You turn at the same time, and the archers now shoot into the crowd. And as they stream along, they get to the end of the infantry line and they circle back around and they kind of make a big D shape. The advantage is that the D, the D shape on the back side, you're out of range and you're safe. And if, if your horse, your steed, should take an arrow or a spear or something happened to it, you could replace it back there. When you run out of ammunition, that is arrows, you can regroup and pick up more arrows. You can drop off a crew member or something in the back. And you're safe. And then you come back around. For the Israelites, this is a withering fire. This is a terrible thing because you have a shield. It's your own shield. You made it at your house. It's not designed to link in shield by shield by shield where you create this impressive barrier. No, no. And as this guy's coming, your tendency is to face the, the archer coming at you, to hunker down behind that, which exposes your flank to the archer that just went by. It's a very intimidating form of welfare. All right, just, I just thought I'd throw that to let you to, to kind of get you into the battle. I'm trying to, to see how this thing is going to actually stack up one day. And so, Deborah says, Arise. She knows that the Lord has gone out. That's rain. The rain has come. She's got it. She's got this figured out. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Barak alighted from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak, if you'll notice on the map, sneaks down. Let's see. He sneaks westward, heads south, loops back around Tabor, not Tabor, and he finds rest in a, in a person's house. 
But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. That would be Yael. We're just going to say Jael. The wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Canaanite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink. That he, then she covered him. And so he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you should say, No. But Yael, or Jael, Heber's wife, took a ten peg, seized a hammer in her hand. Actually, from chapter 5, it's, she's a right-handed girl, so that the, the, the peg is in her left hand. And with her right hand, she went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so, she, so he died. Kind of a good thing to put the kids downstairs on this one, isn't it? That's pretty gruesome. And as behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued. On that day, Jabin, the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel and the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. That's the extent of our reading this morning. And so we need to, we need to sort of like figure out how does that work for us? Like, it's a nice story. It's a great story. But is it going to change us in any way? Does it touch us in any way? Are we available for comment in any way? And I think the trick is to go back to the very beginning. Do you see where he says, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord? How do you play that out? People did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is to say that, I, I can tell you how I've heard it most often explained. It's usually coupled with that last verse in Judges, the one we all remember. Uh, Judges 21 25. You know, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But that verse tends to make it sound like when the, judge, what the judges would do is become like moral compasses for the nation. And that the nation was like always declining, always being more depraved. And they were sort of on their way to being like Sodom and Gomorrah. If they hadn't, in other words, and God would rescue them and, and deliver them. And after all, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is, that he meant that what was wrong suddenly became right. And what was right suddenly became wrong. I'd like to shoot that. I'd like to put that to rest with this. The, that verse of Scripture there at the end says that they didn't have a king. They did not have a national government. They were not the nation of Israel. They did not have a flag.
to which they saluted. They did not have national standards and rules. When two people met on the road, you never know which side was going to pass on whose side. It just meant that they, they, what people had the freedom to do because they were a collection of states, if I may put it that way. They were simply a collection of states. Second of all, the support I offer is this. <clears throat> when they finally got their king, did Israel, in fact, turn out to be some giant pillar of moral fortitude? Did things really did they suddenly repent and turn around and become wonderful Israelites? No, they didn't. It was just as bad with the king as it was without the king. So we have to look for another reason as to what he means when they did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And it's linked to the death of Ehud. Can I take you back even a couple more hundred years in the Wayback Machine? Let's go back to... Exodus 23, and you'll need to turn to the left. Genesis, Exodus 23. This is Moses speaking. Now we know that we know that Joshua entered the promised land in about 1406 BC. Some people will argue. Others will, will say, nah, you're off by 50 years. But we know that this is quite a while ago. And we know that before that, Moses is speaking to him. And let's just pick up the reading. Let's pick up the reading at 28. And I will send hornets ahead of you, that they may drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the fields become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea. Now, this is, this is, this is, this is important. They're just boundaries. From the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philippines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. Now, get this. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Barak had made a covenant with the folks that were in the land of Canaan. And you would say to me, and rightfully you would ask me, oh really, what covenant was that? And I would say to you, this is the covenant that he made. You live over there, we'll live over here. You take that side of the road, I'll take this side of the road. See that mountain range over there, that ridge? This is us, that's you. What was the covenant? What was the covenant that Barak should have made? It should be this. Listen, Canaanites, I will kill you. I will not recognize your right to exist. I will drive you into the sea. I will be, I will be your troubler until you evacuate the land. Now notice God doesn't give the Israelites, He doesn't give the, the, the Hebrews, the sons of Israel, permission 
to chase the Canaanites or the Amalekites or the Midianites or the Philistines all the way beyond the borders. If Canaan had decided this is a tough place to live, we don't like living with these Hebrew children, we're like out of here, we're going to sell and move and we're going to just move north. That would be fine. There would be no conflict. There would be no advance. But they did not apparently do that. They decided to stay. And his posture had to be, I'm, I'm in your face. You don't have a right to be here. Where is, where is Barrett today? Barrett could be you and me. Every arching, overarching story in the book of Judges is this. This is a nation that should be sanctifying itself. With the help of God, it should be sanctifying itself. You'll see that God brought the whole problem to start with with Jabin in the beginning. Didn't he bring Jabin in? Didn't he, didn't he incur this problem in the first place? And didn't he take Jabin out in verse 23? And who helped him? The children of Israel. It's a story of sanctification. It's a story about taking out things that aren't supposed to be in your life. If you were younger, in your 20s, there might be things that you watch on the Internet that just don't belong. There might be things that you should put a stake in. There are things that happen. There could be things that are affectionately yours that shouldn't be. And so you have to ask yourself, are you friendly with the things that God is not friendly with, that He is against? What could some of those things be? They would look innocuous. They would seem unsupportive. For instance, when you enjoy music, let's just go there, music, when you enjoy music, the music that you choose to listen to, does it leave you thinking how great God is, how wonderful He is? Does it leave you thinking, man, I'd, I'd like to hear more of that music and get closer to God? Does it build your affections for the Lord? What about some of your activities? You know, you know and I know that Barak was a guy like us. He had the he had the match socks. He had to figure out where he had to fold laundry and put it away. In other words, in other words, there were things he had to do that he had to do. You you got to sleep, you got to eat, you got to work, you got to come home. But yet, but he has free time. Certainly, he has free time. He has vacation time. I I don't know what the what the vacation times were like in that day. I don't know that what he did for a living isn't clear. But he had free time. And in that free time, he should have said something like, let's go get us a couple of Canaanites. Let's go trouble the Canaanites. Say, but they got 900 chariots. You can take out one of them. You don't have to take out all 900 of them. They run on the road. You can lay in ambush. You can stop there and stop those guys. What is it that you have in your life that you're putting up with because you perhaps feel you have a right to it. What what is what what hobby have you got that looks okay? It could be in the garage, and it's got chrome on it. 
and you've got to clean it and, and sparkle it. I think the word is detail it. It could be something in the basement. But you go down there in the cave and that's that thing that you spend time on and you have not memorized a verse of Scripture. You have no memorization of Scripture program let out, set out for your kids. You know, you're not thinking, you know, by the time they're in third grade, they should know these verses. By the time they're in seventh grade, they should know these verses. Right? Is that there? Or, or, or when you come home on Sunday night and you think, oh, let's just relax and kick off our shoes, get in our jammies, put on some whatever. I don't know. Well, we're going to watch PBS. We're going to watch one of those episodic things, yeah? You, you probably are not the kind of folks that run home and watch, oh, I don't know, what's that one with the zombies now? Walking Dead. You probably don't watch The Walking Dead. But if you were, why are you watching that? Put a stake in it. What about this uh, Game of Thrones? Put a stake in it. What, what, what about the time you spend on, and you get this little thing here going like this, and you're, and you're, you're, you're do, you, there's this, there's this light. You're sitting in front of this great light, the great light, and you're, you're fiddling with this thing. I had a problem. I had to put a stake in it. I would come home. It would be a lot of stress, and I needed to chill out. You know how I chilled out? I'd put on a movie. Netflix. There I am, I'm watching Netflix in an hour and a half, and then I'm watching the second, a second movie. I had to stop it. I had to take Netflix and download it, get it out. I had to evacuate it. What are the things that are key? What are the things that you can do to drive your affections towards Christ? When you finish that thing that you do on your spare time, that hobby that you have, does it leave you thinking, wow, I've been bought with the blood of Christ and I should be one who's given over to Him. Does it make you want to pray? Does it make you want to like worship? Does it make it come like on a Saturday night you're excited because you're going to be standing in the presence of God in a corporate body in a community such as this? Does it leave you that way? What does the effect of the things that are here abiding, the things that you put up with, how does that turn you towards the Lord? More prayer, more less prayer, or 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 does it turn into like more worship? Are you excited about worship? Are you excited about hanging out with guys like yourself, with the corporate people? Are you is that you? Does that thing have an effect on you? And does God have the right to demand that of you? He bought, what part of your life did He buy? And what part is He off limits on? Is He, does He have time, does he, is he, did He buy your casual time? Did He buy everything about you? Did He buy your future? Did He pay for your present and past and future with His blood? So we need to think about those things that involve ourselves. It could be, you know, what it could be? It could be the Hallmark Channel. That's pretty. You know what? That's pretty plain Jane, isn't it? It's G. In fact, my wife puts that on. Take that off the tape. Well, it's like 
it's like it's a terrible show. It's like it's really awful to watch that thing. It's just painful to watch the Hallmark Channel to me. Because I'm a guy, I like things that explode. I like things that get, that blow up. I like fire. I like dynamite and, and action and running and crashing and smashing of things, parts flying. I, I just, that's just me. But does that leave me affected towards God? Does that, when I get done watching that? No, it doesn't. Beric was a man that was in charge and capable of doing that thing. He was capable of sanctifying himself. The sanctification of you and me, of us, is the ever drawing near and closer to the one who loves us. It, it would put in you the idea of maybe, maybe I could write a song. Maybe I could write a poem to the Lord. Maybe out of this group could come your own songs. You don't have to borrow songs. Your sanctification is going to have an effect on your family. Your kids are going to see it. Your grandkids are going to see it. Right now, I, I'm an old person. And I, you know, I don't, I am viewed as kind of insignificant. You know, they're respectful. There were people respectful to me. You know, like, hello, Mr. Miller. But I can tell from their Facebook that the, the kids are out having a good time. And I wouldn't like approve of that. I wouldn't jump on board with that, you know. But that's okay. That's okay. You, you, you should be seen as someone who is willing to take the bullet for Christ. Your sanctification is ultimately going to grow out of your love for Him, your willingness to do things for Him. And I think, I think if I may use this quote from the book of Hebrews, let us go and join Him outside of the camp bearing His reproach. Your sanctification is going to involve the slaying of your own pride. It's going to involve diminishing the importance of yourself. Just like that song we sang that D.A. Carson wrote. It doesn't leave us much room for wiggle. It doesn't leave... God has, in effect, taken everything out of the way. No longer are you captive. And can you stand and say, I have an excuse. The enemy is greater than I am and I have this old sinful nature and it gets the better of me. He says, wait a minute. What then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound? He says, God forbid. In the King James it says, God forbid. And the others it just says, no. Absolutely not. Know ye not that to whom you serve, that's the one that you're, you're bound to. You, you and I, you, you, you and I are never so glorious in our sanctification as when we take up that cross that belongs to Christ. That we take up the death of our own selves. So we're like Galatians 2 and 20. Nevertheless, I am crucified. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I, what I live, I, I'm alive. And the life that I'm now living, I live in the flesh. The life I'm now living in the flesh, I live by the faith of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole story of all the books in the Judges are process of sanctification. And here's the scoop. If you, as Barak, if you 
turn off. If you put the stake in that thing that is keeping you from coming to Christ, the honor goes to you. You know what? I think The Walking Dead is now in chap is in the seventh season. I think it just got approved. Now maybe they don't renew it for the eighth channel, eighth, eighth season, and so you can't watch that anymore. Well, that's somebody else that just put the stake in in that. D- don't you know the car? The house the house burns down to the ground, and the car goes with it, and the motorcycle goes with it. Well, don't do that. Put the stake in that thing. That's whatever it is that's keeping you from moving Godward. It's, it's taking away your affections. You're friends with it. You're friendly towards it. But as you're friendly towards it, you end up turning your back on God. Prayer meeting should be the packed house. Prayer meeting should be the central packed out house. It should be full of people who are like, I can't wait to get there and I can't wait to get into prayer. If it's not, if you find yourself like just, it's a habit, you know, we do it every week, and this is what we got to do. Check to look and see what you haven't put a stake in yet. What is that thing? What is that thing that is causing you to not have an excited affection? When it's time to come for the offering, do you just put it in on duty or do you get like excited about that? Are you a hilarious giver? There's something you should be putting a stake in if you're not a hilarious giver. It could be your affection for God and your affection for God cannot be divided. You cannot have a divided affection. James teaches us that. <clears throat> now, I understand that you all like to go to dinner at noon. And it's pretty close to there right now. So it's time for us to wrap this up. And I will have to say this. I did not hear the three-zippered song that you normally hear. You know the song that goes like this? Zip, when people know that it's about time he's wrapping it up. Let me just say this. We we serve a God who has supplied a wonderful Savior. This one whom is, what is he? The Alpha and the Omega? The first word and the last? Who is also, in the Greek it's uh, archagos. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It's a wonderful word and very hard to, and very hard to translate. Some, some places say that it's the, the Prince of Life or the Hero or the the the, uh, the the uh, the the prince of life, the hero is it's used twice in. in uh, anyway, listen. He he is this wonderful person. He is the one who has not only done it all, but has come back to help you do it all. He didn't just blaze a trail and go to heaven. This trailblazer, this archangel. He didn't just go there and now he's up there waiting for you. Well, he is physically waiting for you because he's a, he is a man. But he sent his, his Holy Spirit to you to help guide you through that, that same path. So it behooves you and I to chase after him with all the vigor, with a kind of ruthless determination, grim, ruthless determination to take whatever comes our way from his hand and be thankful. This one who has hair that's white like wool, who wears a robe brighter than any fuller can make it, 
whose feet are like burnished brass, whose eyes are like coals of fire, whose tongue is like sharp two-edged sword, who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven lampstands, who is coming back for us, who has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, he is returning. It behooves us to not only worship him, but to be happy for him, to be proud of him, to be glad for him, and to follow him, and to be bent in our every vigor towards him. I thank you. He, he is coming to reign. You will reign with him. You and I will never look so magnificent as we do on that day. But in the meantime, why don't we just agree among ourselves to figure out what is those things that are taking our affection from Him and go put a stake in it. No, don't wait for somebody else to put a stake in it. Don't wait for something else to happen. Do that. Look at that thing that you eat or drink or think or listen to or play, that game. That, you know, that game. Is that When you're done with this, does that does that leave you burning with some desire for Christ? Think about that. It's a it's a tough and it's an ugly message. It's a, it's a kind of a brutal message this morning. But he's an awfully sweet reward. He's an awful wonderful person. He he is worth everything that there is for it. So I I would just adjure you to move towards him and away from that yeah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for Jesus, for this one whom you sent, this one who is kind beyond all measure, this one who had compassion and has compassion on us, this one who realizes that our frame is weak, who who knows that we are children of dust. This one who has arranged for us a magnificent and brilliant future. This one who waits for us, who prepares for us who is arranging our position in the kingdom that is to come. We thank You, God. And we ask that You would be with us in this journey and that we would take to heart the messages of Deborah and Barak. That we would be ones, mighty men, able to muster Your help and support to go ahead and take out those things in our lives that just, just don't bend us towards You. We ask these things in the name of the one who had thorns pushed upon his brow, who had stripes on his back, who no longer has that, who sits on high, who is pleasing to you, this one in whom we brag on, whom we point to, this one whom we shout out to in worship, whose name is Jesus. Amen.